The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the great robot wars. And Peter Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I am your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, aka Timothy Toastmaster, excited and committed to bringing you informative, inquisitive, and just plain fun positive talk radio. So here we go. This interview was recorded on Friday, May 1st, 2020, and is being broadcast for the first time on Tuesday, May 12th, 2020. Hey everybody, this is UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is Professor Ilham Masoudi. Her specialty is molecular biology and biochemistry, and she is an experienced immunologist who has robust experience working on infectious disease, including emerging infectious diseases like Ebola, Zika, and West Nile virus. She comes highly recommended to interview by her fellow professors, and her CV is over 20 pages long, meaning that she has published an impressive amount, and I am definitely excited to have her here. Welcome, Dr. Masadi. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you, Kevin, and thank you for having me on the show. Fantastic. Well, you know, before we get into, you know, these days, it's all about COVID-19. Can you just tell us a little bit about you, you know, where you grew up and, and when you started thinking about being a scientist? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I'm originally from Tunisia. Uh, it's a tiny country in North Africa between Algeria and Libya. And I think that I've wanted to be a microbiologist ever since I could remember. My hero was Louis Pasteur, and I was always enthralled by the question of how do microbes cause infection? How does our immune system well, when I was a kid, I did not know what an immune system was, but how do our bodies fight infection? And why do some people get very sick and others don't? Probably got a big impression. One of the things and events in my life that made a big impression on me is that my aunt is actually paraplegic as a consequence of a polio infection. So I think growing up, I've always had this tremendous respect for pathogens and microbes in general. And I've always been fascinated by this question of how we interact with microbes and I am just thrilled that when I was almost 18 years old, I got a chance to come to the United States. I landed on the East Coast, went to Lafayette College, got a, a Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry. From there, I went to Cornell Medical, which also is known as the Wild Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences, got a PhD in Immunology. And then I uh, traveled all the way to Portland, Oregon, where I did a postdoctoral fellowship at Oregon Health and Science University at the Vaccine and Gene Therapy Institute, learned more about the immune system, really started developing animal models and research questions centered around emerging and re-emerging viral diseases. And then I had my first faculty position at Oregon Health and Science University. Then from there moved to UC Riverside. And then in 2017 moved to UCI. And I'm very happy to be part of the anteater family. Fantastic. Well, zot, 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 welcome. <laughs> and um, what was the deciding factor to come to UCI? What was it that attracted you? 
I was invited twice uh, while I was a faculty member at UCR to give seminars here, one by the Center for Virus Research, and then I was also invited by the Institute for Immunology. And both visits, I was just uh, impressed by the quality of science at UCI, the collegiality amongst the faculty members with whom I met, uh, the campus, um, Aldridge Park just reminded me of Central Park in New York, which is where I did my PhD. And just the campus vibe just felt right yeah. to me. And so yeah. when an opportunity presented itself to apply for a job here, I jumped on it. Fantastic. Professor, for us novices, can you just distinguish you? Some of these terms are so well known, yet I think a lot of common people aren't versed in molecular biology versus biochemistry. Can you in your wonderful way you explain things, distinguish those two for us? Oh, that's a tough question. So I'm actually a viral immunologist, so I'm not really a biochemist or a molecular biologist in the true sense of the word. But I would say that the big difference between them is, and I hope that my biochemist colleagues and my molecular biology colleagues <laughs> do not hate me for this, but in, in my world, I think of biochemistry as more the structural biologists, the people who are studying how proteins interact with other proteins, their conformation, what controls that, the post-translational modifications, how they fold, and how they interact with neighboring proteins. And molecular biology, I think of it more as um, the cloning, gene expression, epigenetics, those sorts of things. But I do want to emphasize, Kevin, that in today's world, the way that we do science is no longer in silos of disciplines. And every experiment that we do touches upon a multitude of disciplines nowadays. So even as an immunologist, I have to be a cell biologist and sometimes a biochemist and sometimes a molecular biologist and sometimes think outside yeah. the box in a different discipline. So our world has really changed and things that used to be very well defined back in the 80s and, and the early 90s are no longer that way. I, I think of science as being very fluid these days and mm. cross-disciplinary. Interesting. And then when you're an immunologist, it's amazing, it's fascinating, it's unbelievable. The immune system for a human being is basically what fights off the bad guys that want to enter in. Is that, a, is that a layman's description or is there a yeah, better that's description? A, that's a pretty good layman's description <laughs> of it. So the primary function of our immune system is to fight off microbes, but also immune system is, plays a very important role in clearing out cancer cells. Uh, the immune system plays a really important role in the brain, for example, um, that are immune cells in the brain that are important for pruning neurons and making sure that the connections between different cells in the nervous system are correct. The immune system plays a role in bone remodeling. The immune system plays a really important role in liver biology. So it's not a, a standalone organ system. It's actually pretty well integrated with the rest of the organ systems and the physiology of the body as a whole. But its primary job is to keep us healthy from both microbial infections as well as transformed cells. When we talk about the bad guys, are we talking about bacterial infections and viruses? Or, oh, no, no, there's a lot more than that? There's or, a lot more, yes. Oh. There's fungal diseases, there's parasites, there's a wide range of microbes out there that can cause infection. Also, do not forget, there's even a bigger group of microbes that don't cause infection, and they're actually part of our body, and this is what we refer to as the microbiome, and actually those microbes that live on our body and are part of our ecosystem are important for educating our immune system. So if we actually disturb the microbiome or what we call those commensal microbes that exist in our ecosystem, we can completely derail the development of our immune system. Um, and we know that from experiments where, for example, mice are reared in what we call germ-free conditions. So they never grow up with microbes. And those mice have a lot more autoimmune disease and they don't know how to fight the bad microbes appropriately. So we have this very interesting and complex relationship with the microbial world. We need the microbial world to educate our immune system about when to respond and when not to respond. But yet we also have these pathogens, which are microbes that cause disease, and those we need to eliminate. That is just amazing to hear. 
And when you're talking about microbes, are you referencing the good bacteria that's in our intestine? Is that one of the That's one of those. Yeah. So in our microbiome, there's actually not just bacteria, there are bacteria, viruses, and fungi that are part of our microbiome, part of this commensal microbe world that is important and part of our ecosystem. And it's not only in our gut, it's in our skin, it's in other places. And if you disrupt any of those communities, then you can actually induce disease. Yes. Wow. That's just amazing. And this is why I became an immunologist. (laughs) (laughs) As I've been doing some research, just in getting ready to interview you, I saw where there was a statement that says that a virus needs a host to live. But doesn't a bacteria need a host also? Can you tell what the difference is with that? Absolutely. So viruses are pretty much the simplest forms of a microbe. They are literally just genetic material surrounded by a protein coat. They have no ways of synthesizing their own protein. They have no way of really replicating if they don't invade a host cell. That's not true for bacteria. Bacteria actually can make their own protein. They can divide without needing a host. And we have a lot of bacteria that live outside of cells. We have some bacteria that like to invade cells and are intracellular bacteria, but a lot of them are extracellular bacteria. But that is not true for a virus. A virus cannot exist if it's not inside a host cell. It's an obligate intracellular pathogen. Wow. It's amazing when you start to see at the micro level and then at the macro, at the biggest outer space levels, how these things, these stories seem to repeat themselves in our living experience. It's fascinating. Yeah, and it's, it gives you a whole new level of respect, right? These pathogens absolutely need a host cell to replicate. So they're incredibly wimpy and not self-sufficient. And yet, look at the devastation that various yeah. diseases have caused throughout the times. Yes, Can you, as we now transition into COVID-19, can you tell us how you experienced it? Were you in touch with Chinese colleagues as you started to hear things about coming out of Wuhan? Can you just tell us about how things evolved for you in this story? Absolutely. This pandemic actually touches my family in multiple ways because my husband is also a pulmonologist critical care physician. Mm. So he is one of those physicians who is taking care of COVID-19 patients. Is he at UCI Medical Center by chance? No, he's actually at the Naval Hospital in Balboa Park. So he's a physician, yes. Down in San Diego area? Yes. Okay, gotcha. So yes, our family talks about SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 probably more than the average family does. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So as somebody who's always been interested in emerging viral diseases and re-emerging viral diseases, so you mentioned that the entry I, um, at the beginning of the interview, I, over the years, I have studied a lot of emerging viral diseases, yellow fever, chikungunya, West Nile, peripheral interest in Zika, monkeypox, and I've had a long-standing interest in how these viruses emerge, why they emerge, what is the consequences of these infections in populations that are largely naive? And by naive, I mean in populations that have have not seen these viruses before. And in January, um, studies started coming out indicating that there is this very strange pneumonia that was observed in cases in Wuhan, and it was caused by a coronavirus. And the scientific community has been raising alarms for a number of years that there are these bat coronaviruses that are fully capable of potentially jumping from bats into the human population, just like SARS did in the early 2000s. And so that started ringing alarm bells for me. And at first I thought I have a lab that's currently focused on some other research projects, some viral diseases, but also research projects. I'm also a new mom. I have a baby at home. She was three months old in January. And I thought, okay, maybe this virus, I will sit this one out. I I have a lot going on in the lab, a lot going on on home front. Maybe I'll sit this one out for a little bit. But then it became very quickly apparent to me that this was not just another emerging virus. This was not going to be a localized infection. This was going to have a tremendous impact on the world as a whole, And then I felt compelled to join the forces of my colleagues who are immunologists, virologists, epidemiologists, and try to do my part to understand the disease process, help my colleagues where I could 
offer my expertise where I could and make a difference. And so that's how I found myself starting this research. Gotcha. Excuse me for a moment, Professor. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is Dr. Ilham Masoudi, and she's a professor in the Molecular Biology and Biochemistry Department at UCI. She has extensive experience working on infectious diseases. So, Professor, you know, getting back, so you were called to step up. That's At true. what point were you, you know, well, w- this is a full-born pandemic? So starting in February, I started thinking that we really need to mobilize forces. And then, of course, in March, pretty much all other research efforts in my lab have come to a halt mm-hmm. and all hands on deck now in terms of studying this virus and getting involved in surveillance projects and trying to understand the relationship between the virus and us, the host, trying to collect data to help my colleagues who are epidemiologists understand how this virus spreads, trying to understand why some people are more susceptible than others. A lot of questions. We have so many unknowns and we just need to systematically try to address all these questions so that we can not only have a roadmap to address the current pandemic, but also hopefully a roadmap for addressing future pandemics, because we would be naive to think that this is a one-off event, that this is not going to repeat itself again. Mm -hmm. Can you describe specifically some of the things that you're involved with? Absolutely. Um, So one of the big projects that my lab is involved in right now is surveillance studies. And what that means is understanding how this virus is spreading both in our community as well as in our healthcare providers. Um, So I am currently collaborating with um, two groups of colleagues, and I'll describe this in a little bit more detail. Um, I am working with the School of Nursing and the School of Public Health to look at the rate of subclinical infection in our healthcare providers who are working in high-risk areas. Um, So what that means is we're actually actively enrolling participants right now at the UCI Medical Center. These are providers who are primarily working in the emergency department, as well as in the critical care unit, the medicine critical care unit, uh, both nurses, physicians, and other ancillary support personnel. And we are carrying out a longitudinal study where we will collect a nasopharyngeal swab as well as a blood specimen from our participants for six months at a monthly interval. And Mm. the idea here is that we want to understand what is potentially the incidence of subclinical infection uh, amongst these healthcare providers who are caring for patients who are very sick and have COVID-19. And how quickly are they developing immunity? And then how long, what is the half-life of the immunity that they are developing? And these are important questions because As several studies have recently pointed out, for almost every case where somebody was sick enough to require a test for SARS-CoV-2, there are approximately 50 or potentially more subjects who may not have felt bad enough to request a test or to consider having a test. Mm -hmm. So that means that there is a fair amount of what we call subclinical infection that may be occurring. And so this is infection where the person doesn't feel bad enough that they need to go see their primary care or uh, request to be tested. And we need to understand what the levels of the subclinical infection is in our community, because that helps us figure out how this virus is spreading, how quickly is it spreading, are there hotspots where it's spreading faster than others? All those pieces of data are very important as a community to think about how do we how do we restart life again how do we how do we control how do we uh, implement or continue to implement these non pharmaceutical interventions such as social distancing which is not my favorite term <laughs> to use when can we you know when can we restart schools what is the actual risk to people what is the true percentage of case fatalities what is the true percentage of people who are sick enough to require hospitalization what are the long-term consequences of that? 
So we're hoping that these surveillance studies will help address some of those questions. So we have one in the healthcare providers and then we have one out in the community, again, in collaboration with the School of Public Health and the Orange County Public Health Lab. We are hoping to start sampling discarded blood samples from clinics throughout the community so that we can also get a sense of how many people potentially already have immunity to this virus and what does that mean in terms of virus spread. Gotcha. Professor, it seems to be acknowledged that a lot more people have come in contact with COVID-19 and have the antibodies. So right now it looks like John Hopkins website is reporting about a million Americans have tested positives. What does it mean if 10 million people have had the disease but had very mild symptoms or 50 million? Have you thought about what that means? What would that change for our response right now, which seems to be very focused on, look, if we didn't do anything with social distancing, our healthcare system was going to collapse. That seems to be the way I understand it. That's why we've done all this. That makes sense for me. Right. So let me, I I think it's important to dive into that a little bit deeper. So this virus landed into the human population where there was no pre-existing immunity, right? So we were a clean slate, so to speak. And like, a ma- like a mouse that was raised in a clean environment. Is that true? Right. Or think about like if there were no hurdles, right? If you poured water and a very smooth surface, what would happen? The water would just race through the smooth surface, right? As opposed right. to if you poured water where there were crevices and hills and mountains and obstacles, right? right? right. And the water won't get to the other end as fast because mm-hmm. there are obstacles for it. And so the reason why our healthcare was under danger of collapsing is even if this virus has only a case mortality rate of 0.2%, even if it's very low, just like flu, only 0.2%, what the fear is, and this is a real thing, is that those 0.2% people would all get sick at the exact same time. And 0.2% of 300 million Americans is a lot of people that would completely overwhelm the healthcare system. So I really want to make a distinction there that the case fatality rate or you know the, the mortality rate for this virus is not going to be very high right now we're calculating that based on known cases and as you very astutely just said we may have a 1 to 10 or even a 1 to 50 ratio of people who may have been exposed and just not felt sick enough to warrant a test or report it to anyone mm-hmm. so i think once that denominator becomes clearer the mortality rate is going to drop mm-hmm. but if Everyone, if those 0.2% people or 1% of people show up all at the emergency department at the exact same time, then the healthcare system will collapse because we are not meant to handle that many sick people all at once, in addition to everything else that happens already, right? So there's already people coming to the emergency department because of heart attacks, stroke, car accidents, you name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the healthcare system cannot absorb an additional large number of individuals who are really sick all at once. And so that's where the term flattening the curve comes from. So instead of having this very sharp, very large peak, we want to have a flat peak, but the area under that peak is going to be about the same. It's just we're trying to spread it out so that we can absorb it. The other danger of having the healthcare system be overwhelmed is that if everyone's showing up with this highly contagious disease, even if 0.2% of all healthcare providers get very, very sick and die, that's a huge blow to the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. So we can't have everybody show up at the emergency room all at the same time because that puts our healthcare providers at risk. Third, if everyone shows up at the emergency room with COVID-19, then the people with strokes and car accidents and heart attacks then have no place to go. And so then we have unintended consequences on other people who need those healthcare services. So the social distancing is a critical measure and it's the only measure we currently have of slowing the spread of the virus. Does that make sense? It does. But I do think it's important to, because I think there's a lot of confusion out there that this virus is as contagious as measles and as deadly as Ebola. And I think we need to make sure that we all understand that at the end of the day, it's a small percentage of people who get really, really sick. It's a small percentage of people 
who require admission to the hospital. It's an even smaller percentage of those individuals who will require admission to the intensive care unit, who will need ventilation, et cetera, et cetera. But even that relatively small percentage is a big deal because when you have an entirely naive population, you run the risk that entire small percentage all happening all at the exact same moment. And you can see what some of those consequences look like if we look back at what happened in New York. I mean, that's an example of a healthcare system that was completely overwhelmed. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is Professor of Immunology, Dr. Ilham Masoudi. She's part of the School of Biological Sciences. In the interview, we now explore if she has ever seen a virus quite like COVID-19. Here we go. Have you seen an infectious disease quite like this one? It seems like it's an amazing thing to think something that seems to be highly infectious is not readily apparent so that it can spread like wildfire without knowing about it. Then when people have it, most people, it's mild, but then some people get deadly sick. It's mind-boggling for a layman like myself. Right, it is mind-boggling, but it's also not unusual. Uh-huh. I mean, what's unusual about this is that it's a virus that landed in a very largely naive population. But can I remind you of the massive epidemic of Ebola that happened, lasted almost two years between 2014 and 2016? 30,000 people got infected. Over 12,000 people died, all in largely three countries in West Africa. Zika, when it emerged, how many babies got microcephaly and were absolutely debilitated, all in South America. When chikungunya arrived, again, lots of morbidity in places where the population was largely naive. Yellow fever kills 30,000 people every year. Again, the mortality in indexing individuals of 30%. Smallpox, 30% mortality. So viruses never have a uniform disease in humans. We never have a virus that has the same disease presentation in every single human it infects. There's always a spectrum with some people having mild disease, people having moderate disease, and others having very severe disease, and unfortunately, others succumbing to disease. So this is not new for any microbial infection. This is how it is with every microbial infection. What's absolutely new with this is that this is a virus, because it's a respiratory pathogen as opposed to, let's say, Zika, which was a virus that had to be carried by a mosquito vector, a respiratory pathogen with the amount of global travel and global trade and the population density that we have nowadays It was just a culmination of really bad factors that led to this very rapid spread in a completely naive population and therefore appended life as we know it. In terms of testing, are we narrowing into the necessary requirements for valid testing? This has been a great mystery to myself and to a lot of people. Boy, testing is all over the place. Some people say we need it. Some people say we don't need it. Some people say it's this one, that one, the other thing. It's hard to get anything straight. Can you shed a little light on that? I can definitely try. So when we talk about testing, we're talking about two different things. One form of testing is looking for the virus itself. And those are the quantitative PCRs that we talk about. So this is the nasal pharyngeal swab. We extract nucleic acids, and then we look for viral RNA in the sample. Those tests require, obviously are very intense. They require somebody to go in, get a nasal pharyngeal swab, extract the RNA, do the quantitative PCR, have the appropriate positive controls and negative controls so that you know for sure that you can detect virus. There are lots of challenges with that testing because it's very labor intensive. It requires specialized equipment and looking for viral nucleic acids with the current kit from the CDC has somewhere around 25% false negative, which means there's 25% of people where there is potentially virus. The PCR is not picking that up. Those are challenges that we must overcome. Now, right now, we are easing the testing requirements. So at the beginning of this pandemic, the only people who are getting tested were people with very severe symptoms. But I now see that 
there are more kits available and that the testing is now being open to anyone who wants to get a test. There are lots of challenges with this test in the sense that if the nasopharyngeal swab is not done right, or if that person just happens not to be shedding that particular day, you're not going to find viral nucleic acids. You're not going to find the viral RNA. Does that mean that that person is not infected? No, that person could very well be infected. They just happen to either not get a good sample or be one of those 25% false negatives or just not happen to be shedding that particular time with this sample. Can we do nasopharyngeal swabs on people every single day? Absolutely not. We absolutely do not have the resources to do qPCRs, which is the quantitative PCR, on everyone every day. That's not a realistic thing. So we need to find some other alternatives for that. And my husband, as a pulmonologist who has cared for some of these patients, has also told me that he's had patients who are very, very sick with classic COVID-19 symptoms, and yet they come down PCR negative for a few days before they are PCR positive. And so this virus could be replicating deeper in the lower respiratory tract or somewhere else where the nasopharyngeal swab is just not accessing the site of replication. So that's not a realistic way to do a lot of mass surveillance, right? So I can come in today, I can get the swab, I can get the qPCR, and I could be negative. It does not mean that I'm in the clear forever. We have to repeat those tests very often, and they're very challenging to repeat very often. Now, the other kind of surveillance that we can do is look for antibodies. And there's lots of challenges with looking for antibodies right now because there's this great rush to make kits and sell kits and not... Every one of those kits is going through the normal, rigorous testing that would have been deployed under normal circumstances because we do not live under normal circumstances these days. Um, and so in order to validate an antibody test, you have to test it on a very large number of negative samples and a very large number of positive samples so that you can establish how sensitive and how specific the test is. So sensitivity is, does your test pick out 100% of the known positive samples? And the specificity is, does your, does your test pick out false positive? Meaning, do you find antibodies in people who have not really been exposed and it's a false positive? And in order to do that, you need very large numbers of both positive and negative samples to test your kit with. And that seems to be very challenging right now. So there's companies rolling out antibody tests. And when you really dig deep and ask, well, how many positive tests did you run your platform against before you sent it out in the market? Most of these are not FDA approved. They don't even have the emergency youth authorization yet, but yet they're available. You could, you could buy them. And when you dig deep and ask, well, how many samples did you use to validate your tests? We find that these companies have used very, very small numbers of samples to validate their tests, which explains the chaos out there. So what we're doing, for example, in my lab for antibody testing is we're doing a three-step approach just so that we can get around this sensitivity and specificity issue. So there is multiple antigens from the virus to which we know the immune system will make antibodies. And so what we're doing is we're testing against one antigen, that we know does not give us the best specificity. So we get some false positives with it. And then we take the samples that score positive on that platform. We run them through a second different antigen of the virus so that we can get rid of those false positives. And then we go through a third step where we take those positive samples and we will run them against the virus itself. And that will be the penultimate test. And so we are hoping that, at least for our surveillance studies that we're carrying out, that it won't be rapid. You won't get your data in three hours or three minutes or whatever some of those tests are claiming. But at least when we get an antibody response, we will feel confident after we've done our three-step that it's true positive. Now, the other challenge that comes with the antibody test is what do they mean? And that is something that we do not have a clear answer to right now. So if you have antibodies, are you in the clear? Can you go around, get back to your normal life, and you have no risk of getting infected or infecting others? We don't know yet. We need to do some additional rigorous studies, most likely in animal models, where we transfer some of those antibodies into an animal model, for example, and then we challenge the animal model. So we can figure out 
well, what does this level of antibody mean in terms of protection? We obviously cannot do that in humans, right? We can't do challenge studies in humans, but we can leverage animal models to address some of those questions. So when people go out there and they get these antibody tests, they just have to think very clearly about the fact that this, we, we don't know what this means yet. We, we don't have a very clear understanding of whether this means you're fully protected, partially protected, not protected. Can you go see your grandmother who's really sick and not pose a risk to her or him? We don't know that yet. And so we just have to be very careful in terms of interpretation and not getting ahead of ourselves. For those of you who are just tuning in, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest is Professor Ilham Masoudi. She's a viral immunologist with extensive experience working on infectious diseases, and she and her lab are currently working 100% of their professional time on surveillance and other pursuits of SARS-CoV-2. Now back to the interview. It seems thinking ahead from what you're explaining is that 2020 for the rest of this year, there's going to be a lot of people working hard, but the answers won't be coming tomorrow. This is a real life rollout that we're going to be living under these conditions for at least the rest of this year. Is that somewhat accurate, would you say? I would say that, you know, life as as we pre-COVID-19 may not return very quickly. Mm. And we all have to get comfortable with uncertainty. And I think that's really, really hard and very challenging. There's a lot of uncertainty right now. And we need to get comfortable with uncertainty, which is not an easy task to do. But I also want to tell your listeners that there's a lot of scientists and a lot of epidemiologists and a lot of physicians and a lot of mathematicians, and a lot of modelers, and a lot of economists, and everybody's working really hard to interpret the data, collect the data, understand this virus, come up with vaccines, come up with therapeutics. And so I think my message out to your listeners is, we're all in this together, we're all trying to get answers, but we do have to get comfortable with uncertainty for a little bit. But rest assured that everybody's working around the clock to try and come up with answers. And so I think in science, we trust and we're going to get out of this. There's no doubt in my mind that we will persevere, but we're going to need some time to work through all of this. On a smaller scale level, are you teaching online classes this quarter? I am not. This quarter, I am not doing any online teaching. I hear from my colleagues that it's been a little bit challenging, but there's been some really good moments of hope and good interactions. But I understand that it's a very challenging time for both the faculty and the students. Gotcha. I do want to end on a high note, though. I think that this crisis has shown us the best of humanity as well. Just thinking about everybody who's rolled up their sleeves and got in the lab or you know, their manufacturer or people have been galvanized to do everything that they can to help. And that is incredibly enriching to see, in my opinion. I think it's brought out the best in us and it's shown that that the solidarity in our community, people are helping their elderly neighbors to get groceries. Uh, People, our healthcare providers are going out there to work. And I think we should thank them and all the first responders, the MTs, the firemen, the police department, everyone who's showing up to work, regardless of the dangers that they may be facing. And we need to thank them and applaud them. I think it's applaud our communities that have shown clever and innovative ways of staying connected, applaud all the teachers who are trying to do their best to deliver the best education that they can to their students, whether it's kindergarten or elementary school or middle school or high school or college, applaud the students who are trying to do their best as independent thinkers and learners. And I think we need to just be proud of ourselves, gives ourselves a pat on the back, and just remember that we will get out of this. We will succeed. We just have to persevere. Excellent. 
Doctor, another high note seems to be that California seems to be doing a pretty good job. Knock on wood. Are you in alignment with that? Do you have any comments about where we are in Southern California and as a state? Yeah, so I think we've done a very good job of flattening the curve compared to New York. But also we have to keep New Jersey, New York, Detroit. We do have to keep in mind that it would have been very, very hard for New York to not have the numbers that they did because in the five boroughs alone of New York City, there are 10 million people who live in very, very concentrated conditions. And so, you know, it's really hard to social distance when you live in a 60-story building with thousands of other people. So I think they absolutely did the best that they can under the circumstances. We're lucky that very few of us in California take mass transit to go to work, especially in Southern California. We have the ability to truly social distance and I think that paid out in terms of really flattening the curve. I am, though, I looking at these numbers, our rate of seropositivity, which means the percentage of individuals with antibodies right now, is hovering somewhere between 2 and 4%. And that is a little concerning in the sense that if we don't have a lot of herd immunity, this virus will keep circulating until it gets to the point where there is enough people with pre-existing immunity that will act as natural speed bumps to slow the spread of this virus. So it's a very delicate balance between sheltering in place and flattening the curve, but we need some sort of immunity and hopefully a vaccine will be forthcoming sooner rather than later because that's another great, wonderful and safe way to build herd immunity. But we do need to build some herd immunity before life can even get back to a semblance of normal, if that makes any sense. It does. How about Dr. Anthony Fauci? He in my book, seems to be a terrific leader. Yes, I love the signs that say in Fauci, we trust. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Fauci has been a very steady, calm leader in these turbulent times, and I think he's wonderful, and I think he's doing a great job. Yeah, nothing but praise for Dr. Fauci. Great. Thank you very much for being on my program. I just want to humbly compliment you on your wonderful enthusiasm and love for what you do. It's contagious. And uh, you're a great spokesman for science. Well, thank you. And I'll be happy to come back anytime. Thank you very much, Professor. All my best for your research, your work with your colleagues and students, and also with your little precious baby at home. All my best to your husband and you for the work that you're doing. And please keep it up. Thank you. Bye. Thank you again to Dr. Ilham Masoudi, viral immunologist at UCI's School of Biological Sciences. Professor Masoudi came to UCI Conversations by prior guest recommendation, and she did not disappoint. Her all-hands-on-deck attitude combined with her passion for her work are a powerful combination. And don't forget, she is inspired by what she sees around her, from first responders, teachers, food servers, And she guarantees scientists are giving it their all to find a breakthrough. We will get through this. We wish her and her team all the best as they do their part to help with the national and international pandemic crisis called SARS-CoV-2. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer committed to bringing you breakthrough feature interviews with how UCI is combating COVID-19. And don't forget, tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Or if you prefer, my podcast website can be found at www.bostonmeyer.com. That's www.b as in Bravo, O-S-S as in Sierra, E-N as in November, M as in Mike, E-Y as in Yankee, E-R, www.bostonmeyer.com. And I can also be reached at my email at kboss at KUCI.org. As always, thank you to blues piano man Fred Kaplan for his wonderful blues piano at the top and bottom of the show, signifying the CD. And now coming up next is Ash Kumra with Entrepreneur Nation, helping you find your path to business success. So stay tuned. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Don't forget, as Dr. Masoudi would say, as well as Dr. Fauci, keep your physical distance, 
Wash your hands frequently for at least 20 seconds at a time. That would be two to three. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. You get the idea. I do it three times. And wear a mask. I've been your host, and it's been a pleasure. Kevin Bostonmeyer. Wishing you safe journeys. We will get through this. A pleasant good evening. Keep working hard. You will succeed. So long, everybody.